Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to another episode of Believe in the Press Road. Jonah Siegel out here in Ground Central for uh, the coronavirus. Not making light of it, but every time I blink, it seems there's another episode here. Uh, things are pretty crazy. Happy to be reporting. I'm working from home. Um, joined today, I believe either from New York or Connecticut, is Canadian uh, expat, Adnan Burke. How are you? I'm doing great, Jonah. I am uh, on the outskirts of New York City. I lived in Connecticut for nine years. Uh, when the transition came in terms of my new work, we moved to Hohokus, New Jersey. But as I've learned, when you live in this area, particularly in Jersey, as my friend Mike Lombardi tells me, in North Jersey, you just say the county. So if I say Bergen County, anybody that knows New York, the New York area, goes, oh, I know Bergen County right away. That's a very good reputation. It's quite affluent, et cetera. If you live in South Jersey, you just say exit four, because everyone knows that's where you get off the turnpike. So in layman's terms, since we both uh, know Toronto well, I'm, I'm 16 miles from Manhattan. So I would think that's like Markham to Toronto. My folks live in Maple. So maybe it's like Maple to Toronto. So I'm, I'm the outskirts of New York, but uh, I'm living in Jersey. So your folks live in Maple. Are you related to the infamous Moro from Maple that always used to call into like the, the Leaf post-game shows and Bug Gord stuff? <laughs> No, thank God I'm not. I was never a Leafs fan. I was born in Toronto. I did grow up in Kingston a few hours away with my brother, but he was a huge Oilers fan because of Gretzky and Curry and Anderson and the dynasty. So naturally being brothers, uh, I cheered against him and cheered for the Flyers. 85 and 87, they played Edmonton in the cup final, and I still haven't gotten over it. So I'm a huge Flyers fan. They've won nine straight. I, I cannot, if we start talking Flyers, I'm not going to shut up. But no, I never had any affiliation with the Leafs and uh, Mo from Maple. I I really couldn't care less. The funniest one was at ESPN. I remember the Leafs had blew that big game seven against Boston. And I was filling up on the radio with Ryan Russell. And everyone kept calling in. They go, oh, man, tough day for Adnan. Ah, big Leafs fan. Russell's like, ever since I've known him, he's made it very clear. He's a huge diehard Flyers fan. I don't know why everybody keeps confusing this. But, okay, I I'm all about Ron Hextall. I'm not about uh, Ken Reggett back in the day. So are you then a Goldbergs fan? You know, th there's a huge tribute going on, not just to the Flyers, yes. but to Dave Poulin. I'm you know, those of us who spend a lot of time watching TVs and movies notice the uh, the Dave Poulin poster and references all the time. So I've met uh, the kid. God, I'm blanking on his name. I don't watch the Goldbergs, but the kid in it, and I'm about when I say kid, obviously he's 30, whatever he is, but um, he's a great guy. We did the Oscars together a couple of years ago. And so my cousins actually are big fans of the Goldbergs. And when I met him, I said, uh, Troy's his name. And Troy Gentile, that's right. And Troy's a wonderful guy. And so we'd work the Oscars together, there's four of us, me and my man, Ben Lyons, and Troy. And so when I met him, I said, listen, I'm a huge Flyers fan, so I don't know the show, but I understand that you, you're talking about Philly and there's Flyers posters, et cetera. And he's like, yeah, 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 there's Flyers, there's Eagles, stuff. I'm a Eagles fan as well, I love cutting in. So uh, I don't watch the Goldbergs, but I love Troy, so I support him. And I've interviewed Jeff Garland for my podcast, the file. he's another great guy. So I didn't realize it was a Dave Poulin specific memorial, but... I'll give you a quick Poulin story. When I worked for MLSE, Maple Leafs Sports Entertainment, Dave Poulin worked in the Leafs front office. I don't know if he's where the hell he is now. I'm sure he's gone now. But I remember when I met him, all I kept asking him about was the flak jacket he wore in the 87 Cup Final because he came off a rib injury. And so, as you know, as sports fans, you learn everything through sports. I'm like, that's the first time I heard what a flak jacket was. And I wanted to get one for my dad so I could be like Dave Poulin and pretend I had like a cracked rib and just walk around class wearing my flak jacket. Very cool. Did you wear your black Cooperalls with your flak jacket? <laughs> I'm not that old, so thankfully my Flyers fan, as I said, was in the 80s. The, the Flyers long pants of the 70s uh, predates me, although, of course, I've, I've seen all the videos, and I, I wish I'd been alive for the Broad Street Bullies. There was a great HBO documentary about the Broad Street Bullies. It came out soon after I moved to America. I want to say like 2011, 2012. It's great. It's available on HBO. So I, um, the Goldbergs has, there's a, the older brother has a Dave Poulin poster in his room. And I am told that uh, the writer, one of the writers, I believe, is actually friends with Poulin. And Poulin is a feature, just so you know. He's on uh, TSN 1050 radio, and he's on their hockey program uh, when they okay. come as well. So he is 
no longer with MLSE. He is uh, currently an active broadcaster, uh, joining the ranks of other former players and executives. I can see him do well. He was very personable when I interviewed him. I mean, most people, they see my name, they're not sure, they get scared. He said that man with confidence. He was very polished, still has his hair. Good for Dave. I'm sure he'll be a star. <laughs> so I, I was listening to um, y- your podcast on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh, the yeah. current season. So, so first of all, did you happen to see last night's episode? I did. Uh, it's very funny. I thought the last two are two of the best actually ever. Um, the, the restaurant, the episode with the restaurant where there's a, there's a section for good looking people and a section for ugly people. And then last night's version, I thought I, I was actually laughing out loud while I was watching it. It was that funny. Um, so here's my question for you. What has Richard Lewis done like, is he broke? Like, why is he constantly, he's the most unfunny part of the show. Any idea why he is so heavily featured on the show? Well, I'm going to disagree with you on two parts. One, I didn't think the good looking people episode was as funny as you did. I thought that's a good joke for a scene. I didn't think that was strong enough for the whole episode. It was just, it's just too ridiculous and too bizarre. I will agree with you that John Hamm episode last night was excellent. Uh, Cause Hamm is so funny and the whole issue with the bleeding rectum was very funny. And two episodes ago, I thought was really unfunny. I can't remember now, but I'm sure I said it in the podcast. I said I thought it was very unfunny. So to me, it's been a very uneven season as much as I love Larry David and appreciate that he's still doing Kirby enthusiasm. But I will vastly disagree with you. I love Richard Lewis. He's very funny. He stand up in the 80s. I mean, I've still got tapes. You mentioned off here, Dave Cricks, a good friend of ours. You can text Dave Cricks right now. Not even saying you've talked to me and say, hey, who's a big Richard Lewis fan you know? I'm like, oh, Adnan is a big time Richard Lewis guy. Because we, we would always joke about how the fact he was just so immersed in self-loathing and known as the Prince of Pain. So I have like a Magical Misery Tour, I believe is the name of one of his VHS cassettes that I have. And Cricks and I are both big Richard Lewis guys. So I strongly disagree with you. I think he's very funny. I think his stand-up is amazing. I think on the show he's funny. He's the one that came up with the bleeding rectum bit. So I thought that was really funny. Which you said one of the best episodes ever. And uh, I've actually talked to Richard Lewis on my podcast. He knows what a big fan I am of him. And of course, Keith Oberman is my, my favorite broadcaster. And Keith and Richard Lewis and Bob Costas used to hang out. How about that triumvirate? Years wow. ago in Los Angeles. So if you listen to the pod, go back. It was September, I want to say 2017. And I asked Lewis, I go, God, tell me about having... I go, listen, I'm excited to talk to you. I'm excited to tell stories about you, Oberman, and Costas together. So Lewis was saying, oh, listen, they're both such smart guys. And all three, of course, are huge baseball fans. So he said it was like an education listening to Costas and Oberman, the kind of brain power they have. So I love Lewis, man. I think he's awesome. So I'm not knocking Lewis. I just don't think, I don't understand why he is so prominent on the show right now. That's all. Well, he's one of Larry's best friends, right? He's been around forever. Of course, God uh, bless uh, Bob Einstein, who was passed on. I was it's nice that Vince Vaughn is showing up as a, a progeny. <laughs> he's, he's not, not playing himself. He's playing another Einstein, which I find uh, kind of playing another Funkhouse. Excuse me. That's the character that Bob Einstein was playing, of course, Super Dave. Um, no, I think Lewis is funny in the show. I mean, like I said, the rectum joke is funny. I think just his relationships with women are funny. I just think that because, of course, Larry is the ultimate crank. Um, and I think that Lewis is a good counterpoint to that because he has a lot of that same, and you will speak to this, that same Jewish agita that you'd expect of a New York guy in his, you know, 60s and 70s, but he's almost kind of like a heightened version of Larry. I find him, he's not as caustic and as mean-spirited as Larry. I think he's also similarly pained and aggrieved by life, but he's not angry as Larry is, which I find interesting with the two of them. Well, I, I'm pretty sure that Larry David's kids actually went to the same summer camp that uh, I went to and my kids go to in Algonquin Park. So, so now we've come full circle. Um, Great, guys. Let's say great shout out to Algonquin Park. I mean, that brings back memories right away. I mean, listen, <laughs> I always, you know, I do, I do radio hits in Vancouver. These great guys, Matt Sakaris, Blake Price, we're old friends. Blake and I knew each other at TSN. I was a middling production assistant, and Blake was on air. And now, years later, he said, "You got to come on my show." I said, "Sure." Whenever they mention, and I, I don't do it every time I'm on there because I'm on quite a bit during the baseball season. But when I hear the Okanagan Valley, like I mean, I just immediately. And I've never even been there. I just always used to love as a kid the sound of the Okanagan. I said, I just have got to get there at some point. I just, it sounds so, so beautiful to me. I don't know. It sounds like beer to me. It sounds like, you know, fresh water from the Okanagan Valley. It sounds like somebody's <laughs> making. That's funny. So I look at your, uh, your Wikipedia page. So, so were you actually born in Toronto and then moved to Kingston? Is that right? That's correct. So we were very young. I was like five or turning six. And my brother, I have an older brother, he's three years older than me. So, yeah, my, we were born in Toronto, 
St. Mike's right downtown. Lived in Thornhill for a little time, East York. And then, uh, yeah, moved to Kingston and moved around quite a bit there. A couple houses, lived in Morvin. I don't know if that's on the, that's on the Wikipedia. I may say Kingston area, but Morvin specifically no, from ages listening. 11 to 17. Yeah, Mor- Morvin needs to get a shout out because that's population 500. That's not an exaggeration. And that's from ages 11 to 17. Uh, then went to Kingston for a year and then went to, to Ryerson in Toronto. So was uh, Zach's Variety Store, was that like a corner gas kind of thing? <laughs> I'd love to say it was like a Brent Butt type place. But I mean, literally, I mean, picture a rural like where we lived. And anybody who's maybe Canadian or just lived in rural areas know when, you're, when your address is RR1, like you know <laughs> you're in the middle of nowhere. And Zach's Variety was RR1, whatever the hell it was after that, whatever our postal code was, K7M8L1. Um, but yeah, Zach's Variety, I wouldn't say it was like a corner gas place, but it was the gas place because for, for ages of where you were going, it was the only stop. So if you were going from Kingston to Napanee, you know, you'd stop at Zach's Variety, get some gas, you know, get some bread, some cigarettes some magazines, whatever you wanted to get. We, we were the one store in town, uh, which was kind of, kind of funny now in retrospect. So so you, if I went to the uh, Ernest Town Secondary School gym, is your number hanging from the rafters? <laughs> I don't think it is, although I have a buddy who's still in the area, relatively speaking. He's, he's around Kingston in that area, which is specifically Odessa, Ontario. We're getting really into the weeds here, but Odessa is where Ernest Town is. There's Amersfield, where my best friend, Jeff Lovelock, grew up. And of course, I was in Morven. But I, I believe there's a mention of me. I, there's definitely no jersey hanging from the rafters. But somebody told me, I think when you walk in, you know, every year, of course, you see the graduating class. I don't think I have a plaque, but I believe there's some mention of Adnan Burke, noted media personality, graduated in 1996. I really should check or verify with someone. But I, I, there's a citation, I want to say. But it's definitely not uh, ornate, is my understanding. There's no shrine dedicated to me and my accomplishments. Well, if, uh, if Dateline is your thing, there was a pretty cool show on Dateline last night, actually, that took place like right around there. There was a horrible, like a 12-year-old kid got murdered and they never really, they, some guy got accused and they never found, I don't want to get into the whole thing, but that whole, they, they kept showing on a map where this town was in the U.S. And it was like right in and around that area. It was pretty interesting. It made me think of it as I was doing some prep before uh, getting ready to talk to you today. So you move from there. Wait. Sorry, okay. go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to say, the murder didn't take place in Odessa or Ernestown. It took place in America. But the guy was from there? No, they just, <clears throat> sorry, they just kept, they, when they were showing um, the town where this murder took place in the States, upstate New York, when they would oh, okay. show a map, they kept saying, most people have never heard of it. It's right there up against the Canadian border. So, you know, we get blamed for the weather. So now we're probably getting blamed for a murder that took place in in the States. Oh, geez, that's horrific. Yeah, it was a, it's a brutal story. It was Dateline last night. Uh, I'm not getting paid for this, but it was, it was actually, I think, almost two hours. It was, uh, it was actually a good one. Um, wow. So you moved to Toronto, and off to Ryerson you go. Yeah, so Ryerson was great. You know, a classic tale, immigrant parents, hardworking, uh, middle class. I don't think we were poor. I don't think we were rich. I think we were just grinding it out. So that means uh, hockey is out of the question. Wait, that's way too expensive for equipment. And dad's not going to take me to practice at 5 a.m. What are you, crazy? So you play on the pond with buddies. And I played baseball, of course, in the summers. And, uh, you know, hockey, like I said, out on the pond. A little bit of basketball in high school. But nothing of prominence. But, yeah, small town. I didn't want to go to Toronto. Of course, parents are saying, listen, be a lawyer, be a doctor. You know, I don't think just Pakistani uh, parents, but I think most immigrant parents who have lofty goals. And I'm saying, no, no, I want to be a broadcaster. And even specifically, I wanted to be a director. I really wanted to make movies. And I just adored Scorsese. And in high school, I really, my movie education was really strong. I would go to the Kingston Library and I would pick out movies. This is why I still recommend that while well, libraries still exist. You can get movies for like 10 cents. I think it was like 50, maybe, hang on a second, I'm not 90. Maybe it was 50 cents. But you could get like literally a, a, a Lawrence of Arabia for 50 cents or Citizen Kane or Fellini's Eight and a Half. So I would go and I'd watch all these movies particularly in the summer, I do remember in between, you know, grade 11, grade 12, or grade 12 at OAC, I would keep a list. You know, I, I saw like 50 movies. I made sure I saw like a movie a day that summer vacation before I went to school. And it really was, I'm not exaggerating. It's not that I don't love The Naked Gun or Back to the Future or any of those 80s movies that I loved, obviously, as a kid. But by the time I got to 95, 96, I said, no, you got to get serious about this. So I'm watching The Shining. You know, I'm watching Clockwork Orange. I'm trying to learn about what, French Connection, why it was so important, why it won Best Picture, and so on. 
So when I went to school, I would, my, my plan was one of the best books I ever read is called Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. And it's about the great, great directors of the 70s. I mentioned my love of Scorsese, but also Coppola and Spielberg and Brian De Palma and Robert Altman. And Robert Altman was a TV director before he transitioned to movies. So I said, okay, I was able to convince my parents that I could go to radio and television arts. And I got OSAP, of course, which is a student loan, as you know. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll go to this school for broadcasting, and then I will uh, become a director. I'll be a TV director. I'll just segue to movies. I'll be good to go. But then I quickly realized early on I didn't really have a visual sense. And you, to be a great director, of course, you know, if you and I are hanging out somewhere, Dadman and Joan in a diner, a director very quickly knows how to shoot the scene and over the shoulder and master shots and maybe a tracking shot, whatever. And I just didn't think that way. I, I just not the way I'm wired. As you can tell by my long-winded answers, I'm better verbally. So I realized, okay, director would make sense. Maybe writing. Maybe I could be a writer, a screenwriter. But again, I wrote a script. I didn't have like, great ideas. I felt maybe my ideas were derivative. I was too inspired by other people. So then I said, okay, let, why don't you just go ahead and be a sportscaster? Because you love sports. Obviously, you like to talk. This makes a lot of sense. And then so from Ryerson, I was able to intern at TSN, which as you and I know is uh, the Canadian ESPN for many people, or at least was back then. No disrespect to Sportsnet, which has been coming on strong all these years. Um, but yeah, from Canada Sportsnet, I interned early, and I, I obviously have always loved sports, and I love working in television, and I was ready to go. And I, but I still always wanted to be a film critic. It never left me. So I've been lucky in the last years with my podcast. My podcast has exploded. I get to indulge my movie sensibilities there. And I, as I mentioned earlier, I got to cover the Oscars a couple of years, which was beyond my wildest dreams. So I've been really, really fortunate with things have gone since Ryerson, 96 to 2000. Go Rams. <laughs> so, then, uh, so then you graduated to the score. Is that right? From, from Ryerson, you go to the score? No, so I graduated from Ryerson, and then I'm working behind the scenes at TSN. And it oh. seemed like it was forever, but it was very hard to get on TV, as everybody knows out there who's trying to get on TV. It's a very competitive landscape, and it's really chicken and the egg. How do you get on TV if you don't have experience? Every job you apply for, do you have any experience? No, or you can't hire you. So it's incredibly maddening. You know, from second year to third year, fourth year, I was working at TSN, and I'm thinking, hey, once I graduate, I'm going to get an on-air job, and I'm out of here. And I'm not being picky. I'll take whatever I can get. The great team at Amber, who had been friends for years and who knew me, of course, when I was a production assistant, was a re great reporter at the time at TSN. I uh, said so there's a job in Sudbury, which I had applied for. He'd worked in Sudbury. The guy says, Mark Oldfield. He's all oh, put in a word for you. I drove to Sudbury. You know, now I've graduated from Ryerson, I'm 22. Um, and I met this guy, Oldfield, and Amber. Amber had raved about it. He's like, oh, dude, that is awesome. He's so funny. Great impressions. Everyone likes him. But again, it was down to three. I didn't get the job because I had no experience. And I'm willing to move to Sudbury. I mean, I'm single at the time. I don't care. I'm making uh, 22 grand a year, whatever it was. We couldn't get it. I applied for TVO Kids job, which I would have loved to have done. I love kids. I have four kids now. I always couldn't wait to be a dad. So when I was 22, I said, oh, God, I'd love to entertain kids. And it's really hyper and crazy. Didn't get that job. I applied for a weather job in Toronto, which later I would work with Martine Guyard at the score. Martine was one of the big faces of the Weather Network early on. I want to see the guy's name was Mitch something. Of course, I know nothing about weather. Didn't do good <laughs> enough at the audition. And then I thought I would get a job in Kingston, my hometown. CKWS had a sports job. I said, this is perfect. Uh, I know, of course, Kingston Frontenacs, the OHL team. I will know all the local stuff. I can live with my parents. Again, I'll be making 30 grand a year. It's great. I'll be on TV. I graduate Ryerson, go home. And I didn't get that job. The guy was very nice. I remember, he said to me, listen, you were the most persistent. He goes, if anybody who applies for a job, I put a check mark to those who call the most. You definitely called the most. So I, I give you credit for being on it, but no, I didn't get the job because I didn't have experience. So it was a couple of years of that. And then my dad, who was always the best, he had seen something in the paper saying, hey, they're hiring an Omni for uh, an interstitial host. And so I said, okay, Lucy Zilli used to do this at Omni. That's the time it was CFMT. And you would do two-minute segments before Letterman or before whatever the night, I remember Letterman specifically, but other late night shows as well. And so I went in there and I did like a two minute monologue. It's something of course related to movies. It's always with me. And they go to the theaters or something about why I love going to the movies. And I did something else sports related. And they said, listen, you didn't get the job. Of course, this is a common refrain at this point. We're now like 0 for 6. But there's a show called Bollywood Boulevard, Indian movie show. We'd like to hire you for that. It's $215 a show. And now I've been working at TSM for a while. I'm now an associate producer. I'm making pretty good money. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm now 24. So it's been two years of trying to get on TV. And it's like, take it. The first job of being on TV is you take it. I don't care what the hell the job is. 
even though, despite my background being Pakistani, I don't really know Indian movies, right? My parents watched them, of course. I never really watched them. My wife now does, which is funny. Once in a while, she'll throw a song on. I'll recognize the actor still. It always stays with you. But I got the job. So from 02 to 03, I did that for 16 months. And I also very quickly, this is the lesson to anybody, take the job because something else might happen. Within two weeks of getting Bollywood Boulevard, Old Vert there is turning heads in the building. Oh, this guy's pretty good. He's clearly polished. He clearly loves broadcasting. I don't know where he's from. He went to Rice. Okay. One of the bosses had worked at TSN. He calls TSN. Oh, yeah, this guy's pretty good. Okay, great. Um, and then I, now I quit TSN because I got another job there at Omni called Omni Culture. Kind of like a PBS show. Not quite the dateline which you were raving about, but I'm, I'm tossing to pieces about, uh, you know, the Greek festival in the damn fork, or about uh, Italian folks going crazy on College Street. It's about... Filipino culture in Toronto. So it's a very cultural show, hence Omniculture. So now I'm doing those two shows, and a floor director for Omni, Nick Ciccioni, one time says, you know, what's your deal? And I say, what do you mean? He goes, you do these shows, and then I see in the hallway you're watching sports all the time. I said, yeah, well, I want to be a sportscaster, but I, I couldn't get a job in sports, so you ought to be on TV, take the first job you can get. My cousin runs this thing called Headline Sports. I can put in a word for it. I said, oh, my God. So I give him my stuff. He sends it to Anthony Ciccioni, who is running Headline Sports later this score. Anthony calls me and says, listen, Nikki raves about you. I think your stuff's okay. Uh, <laughs> you need more work. You need more reps. But I think it's okay. And Nikki raves about you. So let's keep in touch. And I said, great. Uh, and then a few months later, maybe it was four or six months later, but Anthony calls. He says, listen, I've been watching you. I see you all the time because Rogers 10 is on everywhere. He's not watching an Indian movie show, but he's watching Omniculture. I'm in the office. I see, I see all the time. It's pretty good. You want to come in for an audition. And from there, I got the job with the score. So it was a very circuitous route. And of course, the lesson is like any actor, like any musician, just take any gig you can and eventually you'll get to where you want to get. And eventually it was a national sportscaster at the score. And I'm 24 years old and I'm just over the moon. All right. So let's pause for one quick second. Talk about something. Uh, equally as important, and that is uh, the worldwide, wide, wide world of home security. Um, you know, I think we're rough. I'm a little bit older than you, but roughly the same age. And I'm sure you've rented and owned homes. And, and the whole process of of getting an alarm company is a real pain in the butt. They come at first of all, you see an ad online or you see an ad somewhere, and they, you know, home alarm for two night or free installation. And then if you have more than two bedrooms, they start adding stuff on. And then you have the monthly monitoring fee. It's a real pain in the butt. The beauty of the modern age are, is companies like SimpleSafe. Uh, SimpleSafe is really easy to install. A guy doesn't have to come out and do it. And you can really get up and running in like 10, 15 minutes. And you can do it yourself. Uh, they blanket your whole home in safety. They have outdoor cameras and doorbells that alert you that anyone's approaching. Entry, motion, and glass breaks. You, get, you can set up alarm all by yourself and it literally takes, I said 15 minutes, they're saying it's 30 minutes. If you know how to put devices in rooms, you can get it up pretty quickly. Um, you'll have an army of highly trained security experts ready to dispatch police in a moment's notice, not that you're gonna need them. Uh, 50 cents a day with no contracts. Let me say that again, it's 50 cents a day with no contracts. If you go to simplesafe.com slash team today, We'll also include free shipping and a 60-day, that's two months, risk-free trial. You have nothing to lose. Go now and you'll be sure, you'll be happy. Go to simplesafe.com slash team. One more time, that's simplesafe.com slash team. I'm a big fan of that product, by the way. Um, so off to, uh, so, so, so you're, you, do, you do several years at the score. Yep. Um, and then you, you leave the score and you end up at MLSE. Yes. You're on Raptors TV, Leafs TV, and Goal TV. Is that right? A great six years, the score. I love those guys. Of course, Cabby and I are old friends from Ryerson. We, we were buddies since 96 was our first year together. And so we got the job of the score together, by the way. I kind of missed one part of it, but I won't get into it. But when I was at – when we were at Ryerson, again, a buddy, Steph Gagnon, who went to a loyalist – no, he went to a loyalist. He may have – the Holy Cross, Holy Cross Secondary, which is a rival school of Ernestown. So he knew Kingston. So he was at Ryerson a year ahead of me in cab. He put in a word for us at Headline Sports. So we actually were there together. Cab and I applied for a job. John Melville was the boss. And I was writing scripts for literally a month. And after that, I got the internship at TSN. And I went to TSN in 98. So full circle, I went 
back to score in 04, which I just thought was interesting. I'd literally been there for a cup of coffee, but when I got hired as a sportscaster in 04, there was still a few people that remember me. Of course, Cab was still there. Cab in the street had now become a huge deal. But even Sixero McAuliffe had vaguely remembered all Cab. Remember, I saw, I saw you one time five years ago. I mean, yes, I, I had been in the building before, but then I was back there. So, yes, six years, had a blast. Court surfing was a big deal for me, doing the NBA, covering Raptors games, really built up my uh, – my rapport, I think, with others. I think people kind of figured out who I was. Uh, Anthony and Dave were incredible bosses, wonderful guys. Still keep in touch with all of them. Uh, of course, I mentioned Tim and Sid. I mean, all, all those guys, they're awesome. Coolius, Martin, I mean, they're all they're really great. But I said, you know what? I was getting a little stagnant. I've been there six years. I'd done a little bit of stuff at MLSE. There the Raptors stuff with Sherm, great Sherman Hamilton. And then MLSE had maybe an offer. And I said, okay, you know what? I think I've kind of done what I can here. Let me go there. And uh, was there for a year, yeah. Did uh, hockey, basketball, soccer. As always in life, it's nice when you're the big cheese. I always felt like at the score, I was behind DeCab and Martine and Sansoni and Sid and Tim. So I'm like, you know, number six on the depth chart. McAuliffe would always make fun of me, and so that's only in your own mind. But whatever. If you need to motivate yourself, that's fine. And then I, we went to MLSC. Clearly, I was uh, me and Andy Petrillo, who's wonderful. We were both a big deal there. So we got to be the faces of Leafs and Raptors TV and Gold TV. And it was wonderful. It was a very quick 10 months. I still keep in touch with the, some of the folks there. Um, I would intend on staying longer, but I had been applying for a job in the States for a couple of years. Anthony and Dave, my bosses at the score, had suggested to me privately, listen, you have the talent and the aptitude to really be a big success and you should try to go in the States. And I said, oh, I don't know. They said, of course you should. I mean, you're young enough. You're not married yet. No kids. You should do it. And uh, we don't say this to everybody, which was very nice of them. Um, so I've been trying to get an agent for a while. I got turned down for the first two agents. Hey, thanks, but no thanks. But here's somebody else you might try. Thanks, but no thanks. Here's somebody else you might try. And then the third guy, Mark Turner and Abrams said, yes, come to New York City, meet me. Uh, no papers to sign, handshake agreement, I'll rep you. I'll try to get you a job in the States. I get you a job in the States, we'll go from there. So while that was happening, I hadn't gotten a job yet. Like I said, I'm kind of tired of the score. I feared I needed some, something different. Aaron LaFontaine's a great guy at MLSC. Chris Hebb was the boss at the end of Bristol. They made me an offer, a little bit of a bump, and you get to be a little bit more of the head cheese. So I go to MLSC for 10 months, loved it, had a blast, like I mentioned. But then I kept following up with the agent, and he said, listen, ESPN's interested. And so that's where everything happened, but I ended up being only 10 months at MLSC. I had auditioned for ESPN while I was working at the score in October of 08. But then I got an offer January of 2010. Again, persistence, young people, 15 months after the audition. And I thought, I knew, Jonah, I had done well at the audition. You know when you suck, you know when you do good. I did good. I went in there with confidence. I knew all my stuff. I, Amber had told me, listen, he's going to test you as a Canadian. College football, college basketball, do you know the conferences? Do you know the names? They're going to think you're just some hockey guy. So stay away from the hockey. Just keep pushing how much you love American sports. Of course, baseball is in your DNA. That's an easy one for you. Football you love, okay. But get the college sports down. So 15 months later, I got the offer. I auditioned at ESPN right around Valentine's Day 2010. And then I had to go into Chris Hebb's office a month later and say, listen, I really appreciate that you hired me a year ago from the score. I thought I would be here for a long time, but I just got an offer from ESPN. And Chris Hebb, like all great bosses, shook my hands and I'm thrilled for you. Get out of here. Go West, young man. Go do big things. So April 2010, you, uh, you head north and you go to the worldwide leader in sports. Um, amazing. Like, it is uh, the biggest, right? Uh, we can debate whether it's the best, but certainly in terms of worldwide recognition, I'm not sure there's anything bigger than that. And uh, you were there for just under nine years, which is phenomenal. Um, my understanding is you covered it all. You, you did some stuff on uh, baseball tonight, covered spring training, uh, did some outside the line stuff. You filled in for Oberman, who, we, who you briefly mentioned. Uh, you did some college football. Uh, you really got full exposure. It was incredible. I mean, when Mark Turner called my agent and said, you got the job, I mean, it's, I'll never forget it. It's like one of the greatest moments of my life. As usual, I was inside of a movie, and I went to go see The Messenger, which is playing at the Cumberland in Toronto. Ironic name, considering that Mark was The Messenger, giving me the best news of my life. And uh, it was with Woody Harrelson, by the way, underrated movie. And I remember I got a call, and, they, and I saw it, and I texted. I don't think I a text at the time. I'm sure I could text at that time, 2010. I said, I'll call you back. I got out of the theater, and he said, listen, 
I just want to let you know, you just being offered you the job. I said, oh, my God, I'm going to faint. I was, I couldn't believe it. Like, at that time, there had only been a couple, John Saunders and David Amber, and now me, as far as Canadian broadcasters, to work as anchors. But obviously, Barry Melrose and, uh, you know, Mark Jones, play-by-play. But I was, I was floored, and I was just over the moon. I'd gotten married uh, a little bit prior to that, um, and so we'd had a little baby. My eldest son now, Yusuf, we have four boys. He was just a little guy at the time, so it was perfect timing. My wife's American, so she was excited to move to America, sold the condo in Toronto, uh, just just couldn't have been more excited and it couldn't have been more welcomed. Like, Lori Orlando was instrumental in my life. She was the one in the talent office who said, who liked my tape, who told Mark Turner back in 08, hey, listen, I don't have a job for him, but I'm willing to meet with him if he's willing to make the effort. And I literally got in the car and I drove with my wife and Yusuf. We drove down nine hours to Connecticut, Stayed in a budget hotel for 100 bucks. Got up the next day, met Lori, met Dave Roberts, who's still there now. Lori's now at CBS. She runs CBS News. Uh, met Dave Roberts, who's still there. Drove back, worked at the score the next day, and then waited 15 months. But it was because of Lori that she liked something in that tape and she said, how would you come down for the audition? The audition there, I met Mark Gross and Alita Whithoft and all the bosses. Did, did a demo on the tape, on the desk, 10, 15 minutes. Met with all by a ton of bosses. Got to see the ESPN set. Even my cousin said to me, listen, at least you got to audition. Who cares if you got the job? You get to see the ESPN set. Like, you were there. I'm like, yeah, I've seen SportsCenter. And then, of course, as you mentioned, you got the job. It's, um, it's not for everybody. You know, Central Connecticut is tough. It's not downtown Toronto. There's not much going on. I've never seen a place where single people and, and married people will, will never coexist, meaning single people hate it. They go, there's nothing here. Literally, Oberman, I believe it was Oberman, famously said, happiness is seeing Bristol in your rearview mirror. Hartford, which I knew because of the whalers, is not a great place to live. It's one of the most dangerous cities in America. Everybody lives in West Hartford, which is a nice area to live. But again, if you're single, there's about five or six restaurants. And after that, that gets pretty old. New York is two hours away. Boston's hour 45. That sounds good. But when you're driving two hours, okay, six o'clock on a Friday, you're always in traffic. There's always construction. It gets expensive and tiresome. Now, with your kids, as I did, and like I said, now I have four. So I had three boys while I was living in Connecticut. It's all right because, you know, you go to work and then you look after your kids. And I had, you know, I was coaching Little League and doing all that kind of stuff. But it wasn't a great place to live. So I will say, you know, candidly for my wife, it was like, listen, this is not what I dreamt of living in central Connecticut for the next 30 years. But the job was spectacular, like spectacular. The, the people I met, the friends I've made were amazing. And ESPN is the kind of place, what anybody wants in life is what? Opportunities. I want to have an opportunity to shine. And they clearly have that at ESPN. If you work hard and you put your head down, good things will happen. And I was working on ESPN News with no guarantees of future success, but I think I did a good job. I think just as important, I did a good job of meeting with different bosses. It's a very much of a silo. You know, at ESPN, there's a different boss for baseball, for college football, for college basketball, for the NFL, for all of sports center, for outs of the lines, which you mentioned. So you've got to meet with seven different bosses, okay? Now, all those guys, of course, have another boss who is, you know, Mark Gross, whoever it was at the time, Mike McQuaid. Then there's the vice president of College of All Programming, which was John Wildpack, now Connor Shell. And then there's the president, which was John Skipper and now Jimmy Pataro. So it's not the kind of place, it's so unconventional that you don't just have one boss and work for him. You literally have like eight to ten different bosses. And each one you want to have to try to develop a rapport, do a good job. And it's just as important as the job you're doing on there as you are meeting with them and just check it up. And here's my tape. Here's what I'm working on. What do you think? I think I'd be good at baseball tonight. I'd love to show you my stuff, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the drive never stops. I remember my cousin said to me, now that you got a job at the ESPN, what are you going to do now? I'm like, what do you mean? Now it never stops. Now, now you finally got invited to the big party. Now you got to work the room. <laughs> you know what I mean? You got in. Now you got to make sure they don't kick you out. So that's always the challenge. You know, as everyone knows, I well, hope people know, it's, you don't get, it's not a full-time job. It's a contract. You get a two-year contract, three-year contract, two-year contract. And after that, they can let you go and not renew you, and then you go find another job. So you're always proving yourself. But I love the experience. Aside from the end, which was untimely and unfortunate, I had a great, great time there. I don't regret anything. I mean, it was really such a memorable time for me. I think the highlights are I got to do baseball play-by-play at Yankee Stadium at Fenway Park at Wrigley. I never dreamed I'd do that. Um, you mentioned baseball tonight, my favorite sports, getting to do that. College football, again, I didn't grow up with it, but I get to cover four national championships. That's pretty cool. College basketball, I love the crew we worked with. I had such good analysts. Uh, but, of course, my favorite was filling in for Oberman. He's my favorite broadcaster. He came back to ESPN, one of his very many returns, and he had his own show called Oberman, which was on ESPN2. And then one night he was sick, 
And uh, one of the guys here, J.B. Critz, who I know forever, he's a researcher, he's a listener. I know Adnan's a huge Oberman fan. I know he watches the show all the time. So if you need somebody, let's call him. They called me. I was actually in Toronto, and I wanted to kill myself, but I couldn't do it because I'm, I'm actually with my family. And it was at, at noon. I swear to God, the show's at 8. I'll drive to New York right now. I can be there for 8 o'clock. What time are we taping? 11 o'clock? And I said, no, of course I can. I have wife, kids, et cetera. But I said, please, God, the next time Keith is sick, and I hope he's never sick because he's the best, but I'll do it. He came down with shingles. So I actually ended up doing the show a lot. I did the show 25 times, but there'll never be a bigger thrill. I remember I filled in for Bob Lee, who's one of the titans of broadcasting on Outside the Lines. I filled in for Bob. They got me a car service. I went right to Manhattan. I filled in for Keith Oberman, who's another titan and my favorite broadcaster. And I said, this might be the greatest day of my life. Of course, professionally speaking, not personally speaking, filling in for Bob Lee and Keith Oberman in the same day. I don't know if anyone's ever been able to say that, but it was a really, really great time. So... Before we talk about the exit, um, I, I heard you on uh, and watched you on Drinks with Binks on uh, nice. Fubo Sports. I want to play you a clip. So, uh, sure. multi-purpose reasons. Let, let's hear the clip. Hang on. Opportunities, there's more money. Like uh, New York City is my second favorite city behind my hometown of Toronto. Right. And now I live 35 minutes from New York City. And, you know, I get to do baseball and boxing and a little bit of hockey. And I get to do an NFL podcast with Michael Lombardi. Like, those are opportunities you wouldn't get. Mm -hmm. Biggest thing I found with Canada in the sports market is it's like, to put it in TV terms, you know, hockey is the A's and the B's. And then the C's, meaning at the 20 minutes past the hour, hey, a little bit of NFL. Oh, by the way, Jalen Ramsey got traded. A little, CFL, yeah. yeah. a little bit of CFL. <laughs> God, a lot of CFO, which I'm not crazy about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You get a little bit of baseball. By the way, the Jays offered a non-tender contract to some BS pitcher. And then we'll come back and reset hockey and then you do like the short version of the flames highlight the oilers highlight the jay oh my god it's like we love hockey. don't forget the scotties and the briar oh, that's yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. so that's the biggest thing i think what it comes down to is this is content like after i got let go by usp my brother goes so it's interesting because you get it you you've played on both sides of the fence um it's interesting to me because there's a lot of blowback from Canadians, uh, Torontonians, if you will, especially in basketball, in the worlds of basketball and baseball, as it relates to American, having, having a difficult time getting Americans come play in Toronto. You're talking about the difference from a broadcast perspective that there's a lack of content. We do hear all the time. We don't like it, but we do hear all the time. I can't believe you can't even get Sports Center in Canada. Yeah, that's a real shame because it's so funny. When I was there, you know, and I knew some of these guys, of course, because you get some overlap. Of course, Boomer, you know, Chris Berman, you can watch him prime time. And I knew Keith only because when I worked at TSN, I, I just said, who's this Overman guy? Because everyone kept talking about Overman and Patrick, how they changed the world that felt like for sportscasters. So I got to watch them because I worked at TSN. And, of course, at the score, I could watch them ESPN. But you're right. The average person, you could not watch SportsCenter. And uh, it's a shame because, like, listen, I got to meet the late Stewart's God. And I said, this guy's unbelievable. Like he's one of the great broadcasters of all time. And I wish I'd grown up watching him. I just listened to Craig Kilborn on my buddy, Ryan Rickasillo's podcast. And Kilborn's hysterical. Like I know him from the late, late show, but I never got to see him on sports center. And like Ryan quoted a couple things that Craig did on TV. And I mean, I wish I'd seen it. So I agree. I, I mean, as a Canadian, if I was in, if I was back in Canada right now, I'd say, listen, I want to watch sports. Center. it's nothing against the TSN guys. Again, James Duffy's my friend, Rod Smith, Darren Detition, all those guys. I worked at TSN four years. I love those guys. But I wish I had the alternative to see what ESPN does because ESPN's quality is always at a high quality. It's just different. TSN's high quality, of course, it is. But the content, like I said, the sports, they're just – when I'm working at MLB Network, I mean, what's going to be better than the Major League Baseball Network? We have access to everything. We have the best analysts, the best insiders, et cetera. So I just think in today's marketplace, you have so much access to everything. It would be very frustrating to me as a Canadian living in Canada – how come I can't watch certain things that I could watch if I was in America? Right. So you can imagine then that if you grew up in the United States, if you're a professional athlete, you go through the college ranks, you've been told you're, you know, you're the greatest thing since fill in the blank, whatever player before you, uh, you've dreamed of seeing yourself on sports center and you get drafted and or traded to Toronto, uh, basketball, baseball, the only two sports that have teams or you're presented as a free agent to go to Toronto. And when you hear people say that one of the drawbacks isn't so much the taxes, isn't so much the weather, but you know, they talk about customs in the airport, 
but they also talk about the fact that they don't get SportsCenter every night. And, and you as a content creator who's been on both sides, you can commiserate with that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I would get that. I mean, I would I'd talk to Americans when I was at ESPN. They would laugh. They'd say, man, we've got to can't I've exactly described to Julie, the A's and the B's. They go, God, when the hell are we going to get to some football? <laughs> like, what? why am I watching the Battle of Alberta, Flames and Oilers? I couldn't care less. So I, I do think that is an issue. That's definitely a challenge, which uh, it's hard to override for Americans because you're used to your comforts. Now, I guess, in, I don't know, if can you watch sports on your phone now? I'm not sure how that works, but I, I – I know that the challenges are definitely there with the CRTC. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, like everything, the beauty of technology is they can block it, but the other beauty is there's always someone who's figured a way how to unblock it, if you will. So yeah. So let, let's fast forward. So you, you, you get almost 10 years at the Worldwide Leader, and the old adage of nothing lasts forever comes to fruition, and uh, you have to exit. Uh, or you're exited. Uh, I want to play you another clip from that same interview. Let's take a listen. Now to your point, when someone says to me, hey, what are you hearing about DAZN NFL? I go, who's asking? Why are you asking? I, I call Horowitz you first. You go from my burner uh, account first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I call uh, Horowitz. I call my agent. What can I say about this? Is yeah. this okay? When Deitch wants to the podcast, yes. I used to be super careful. To super careful about coming on here, too. Yeah, I check first. Right. JB, hey, check with DAZN, check with Horowitz. Yeah, no. And we're all friends. Like, we, Fubo and DAZN, were like brother and sister. All right. So, you know, the allegation is, without getting into the legalities, and I know nobody sued anybody, so, and and not only that, you ended up in a great place, and and coming, it's it's a year now, since uh, almost, I'm not sure to the date, but according to Wikipedia, anyways, you've been with DAZN now for, or DAZN now for uh, a year. Um, it's, I, I find it a little ironic that the allegations surrounded leaking information to the to, to the media. Um, I just find it hilarious that such a huge chunk of the mothership's business relies on reporters getting information from sources, and yet when the shoe is on the other foot, uh, they don't like it so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was one of the points that I, I think Richard Deitch and Jim Miller made, which was was pretty funny. I mean, it's listen, the, the entire experience was traumatic to say the least. I I don't know what's more shocking that I ever got to work at ESPN, or like you said, I got almost nine years, or that I got fired by ESPN and the whole world knew about it on Super Bowl Sunday, and I had to call my parents before the article came out, and then I had to call my brother once the article was out. I said, hey, before you Google my name, here's what happened. And my nephews and nieces are going to find out. And I mean, those, just the, the chaos and the stress was just, it's, it's, I mean, anybody who's ever been let go by a job knows how painful it is. If you're let go by a job in the media and everyone knows about it, it's times 10. But you just have to persevere, right? I mean, the next day I still took my kids to school. <laughs> I was looking at me like, oh, my God, there's a guy that got fired. But you just have to laugh with it and just, you know, pray that you'll get through it. And, of course, I have great agents at CAA. And a lot of people that believed in me and old friends and John Skipper and John Hor- uh, Jimmy Horowitz and DAZN. And, of course, my new bosses, Rob McLary, Dave Patterson, MLB. And they, they literally welcomed me with open arms. But to your point about that specific aspect of it. So think about how, you know, I think forgiving American and Canadian society is. In life, somebody gets fired. Okay, what happened? And people hear the story. And whatever it is, if people like you, they're going to forgive you. Meaning, if I had... Uh, um, Let's say it was a DUI. Let's say I got a DUI and it was excessive and uh, I don't know. I was in a drunken state and I got into fights and the experience. We got to let this guy go. You know, a vast majority of people are going to go, oh, man, that, guy, that guy's an idiot. Like, what's he doing? He's got to control himself. Maybe he's an alcohol problem. But a lot of people are going to go, oh, you know what? I know a guy kind of like that too. And God, I always liked that guy on TV. He's really good. And I always heard him talk about his wife and his kids. And, man, I like his movie stuff. And man, I feel bad for that guy. I, mean, I, I hope he's going to be okay. I hope he gets a second chance. I really feel like people are generally very, very compassionate. And if you look at, again, American society, people love second chances. Tiger Woods, one of the great scandals of all time, and he wins the Masters, women are going crazy for him. Like, hang on a second. He cheated on his wife with like hundreds of women, thousands. It's like, no, I, I keep telling me women I know that are roaring with approval when he won the Masters. And I, I like to see that because people said, listen, everyone gets a second chance. I'm happy for this guy, et cetera. Robert Downey Jr., cocaine, drugs, all these things happened to him in the 80s. He comes back, he's Iron Man. He's one of the biggest movie stars in the world. So I think people love second acts and they love giving people second chances. 
because I think people have big hearts and say, listen, if I went through something, I wish people would be there to pick me up too. My point is by saying that is that if I had truly done something, you know, and, and we all know what the stuff that I'm, which I'm referring to, right? Physical assault, sexual assault, anything like that. Like, oh my God, that's, that's horrific. In my issue, this sharing of information with a blogger, <laughs> like if you had to count the number of things, Jonah, hey, I, if, if I'm going to lose a job over this, I'm like, okay, I, I'm pretty sure this is the one that if people do a little digging and read the full story, they're going to go, really? Like that's what, that's where you're going to lose the job. To your point, ESPN, they rely on sourcing through Adam Schefter and Adrian Wojnarowski, et cetera. And then if one of their employees allegedly told a, a blogger about their baseball tonight schedule, like, is that really something that should be termination worthy? And again, I, I'm very grateful because I think when these stories come out, my friend Sean Cameron said to me, Puffy, he goes, they go one way or the other. People either go, oh, that's too bad, man. That guy deserved to get fired. But here's a nice guy. I hope things work out. Or wait, he got fired for that? Like what? There must be something else in this. Like that doesn't make sense. That seems draconian or over the top or, and in addition, I think he's pretty good at his job. And I was really interested and it was really remarkable, very surreal to kind of watch the public feedback of what people were saying. And not just like my Twitter and social media, which I wasn't tweeting, but of course I was monitoring here and there. And those are your people who support you, right? They're going to tweet you, say, hey, you're the best, hang in there. This sucks, you spin, blah, blah, blah. But just, you know, looking at tangentially people who cover the thing, they were all on my side. Like Richard Dyke immediately was like, this is ridiculous. Like Jim Miller, who I'd never met, who literally wrote the book on ESPN. So he knows ESPN better than anybody, right? It's like a 600-page book the guy wrote, which is about the 40 years of ESPN. When he came out and started tweeting, going, this is insane. This is absurd that they fired this guy. Like, and, he, and he said on Dyke's podcast, if you listen to it, he goes, I don't even know the guy. I never even had a cup of coffee with him. He's like, but this is absurd that they fired this guy for this. He's like, he's a hardworking, loyal, good employee. I think he's pretty good at his job. And this behavior, this information sharing happens all the time. Like this is, this is lunacy that this is how you're going to react. If you want to pull him aside and suspend him or censor him, some, okay, fine. But he goes, a termination. If you look at ESPN's tracker, they don't terminate many people. And for me to be the one that was terminated, it was, it was um, obviously an unforgettable experience. But I was very lucky that people were supportive of me. And like I said, I don't look at the ESPN experience and focus on that. The final 72 hours were clearly very, very difficult and painful. But above all, I'm very grateful to ESPN because of what they gave me. Because there's no question, all the work that I have now, the Zone, MLB Network, NHL Network, Sirius, Cadence 13, where I have two podcasts, it's because of what I accomplished at ESPN. So I'll always be grateful to those guys, ultimately. So it's funny. Um... You probably don't know this and it's totally fine, but you know, the, the blog that I, I write for torontosportsmedia.com, um, we get information all the time from various sources. And right like the day after the NHL trade deadline, I got information from several sources that changes were going to be made to the Fan 590 lineup. And once I had it from numerous sources, I published it. And the next morning, so we're now two days after the NHL trade deadline, uh, I get a phone call from the program director and he's irate. And I, I said, like, what's the matter? And he said, you, you publish things like that and you mess with people's lives. You don't take into account that people have lives and they're learning about these things from you. And I said, what did you host on your airway two days ago from 6 a.m. till 10 p.m.? doing nothing but rumor mongering and talking about what people are hearing that never gets confirmed. Like, right. have you met the kettle? Like, what are you talking about? Um, yeah, it just seems to me that, that, that re releasing somebody who's doing really well, that the audience really likes for something like that makes them look petty as opposed to, you know, when, when, and I disagree with, with one thing. Like, I don't think Matt Lauer is getting any second chances. But that's a whole different ball of wax. But um, no, like it just seems, for lack of a better word, shitty. Yeah, and, and it's funny because I would get a lot of people who go, "Well, there must be something else." I'm like, what do you mean? But like, like the people who were coming the story go, "Well, what else do you do?" They go, "Nothing. That's it." Like, you go ahead, and and I'm laughing. Go, hey, check my record. Go ahead, ask anybody. Did 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 he? Because everyone knows what's going on here. Me too, and all that stuff. I go, go ahead, ask at any point with any employee. Was there any sexual impropriety? 
was there any harassment? And they're like, no, the guy was great. He was a great guy. Like I, like, I had numerous people who were like, like, it's funny, right? When there's smoke, there's fire. I'm just trying to dig up dirt on you. They go, no, there is no dirt. He's, he is what you, what you would expect. He's Canadian, which means he's kind and friendly. He comes to work. He's easy to work with. He goes home. He's got his wife and kids. He tells stories about coaching Little League on Mike to Mike on ESPN Radio. He watches a lot of movies. He's clearly in the movies. And, and that's it. And so to your point, if something happens and it's a troubled employee, but somebody who has a track record and you go, hey, they are looking for an excuse to get rid of this guy because guess what? It was actually a real pain in the ass. That's different. But in this case, you go, wait, good guy, doing a good job. He's worked above and beyond. And you're going to let him go over there? Like, and, and again, I would look at it even from the company's perspective, Jonah. It's you say, hey, listen, man, you can't share company information with anybody. Okay, got it. Right? You can call me and go, hey, listen, I don't care what happens in these four walls. You can't tell your dad what's happening. You can't tell your brother, hey, I hear this guy might be losing his job or this anchor's happening, whatever it is. Okay. Like, make that point clear to me. And again, to reiterate, if you want to suspend me for a week, trust me, I'll get the message. You take money into my pocket. Okay, I got it. <laughs> you don't need to tell me twice. There's a lot of people that you spend, you and I can Google right now, who are hugely successful, who have been suspended in life at ESPN. I don't need to say all the names. You can go ahead and Google it right now. But some of the biggest names of that company have been suspended before. So that's not a big deal that people make mistakes or screw up or need a correct, whatever you want to phrase it, right? But to terminate somebody is like you're taking away their livelihood. I had a three-month-old baby at the time. You get three weeks severance, excuse me, paternity at ESPN. And I took one week when the baby was born, my littlest guy, and I went right back to work because I said college football is too important. I'll take the time off later. And I'm not saying that to gender sympathy. My point is simply that I was always putting the company's priorities first. And that's, that's not a bad thing. When you work for ESPN, you should value the company. You should put, realize you're very, very lucky. So, yeah, you guys want me to just to have the baby and a couple of days with them, and I'll, I'll take time off three months from it. Like, whatever. Like, I, I was always a guy who was very malleable and easy to work with. And, again, you can, you've got contacts. You can ask anybody who's ever worked at ESPN and who's ever worked with me, what's this guy like? And they would tell you. So, What's interesting is that when something unfortunate happens to you, when you feel that you've been agreed and you don't deserve something, you know this as well as I do. What matters is your reputation. And so if you get screwed, so to speak, um, people are going to go, well, hey, I think he's good and I hope he gets a second chance. And I think that's why I was so quick to, and lucky to bounce back. Again, you and I know people in media, it doesn't work this way. You don't just lose your job and all of a sudden they go, well, we'll just Fox will hire him. I had three people say this to me, I go, it doesn't work that way. Like, as somebody told me once years ago, there has to be a vacancy at the hotel. Like, you're not just getting hockey in can. Oh, Burke's available. Let's hire him. No, no, we already have our guys. <laughs> we have Ron McClain. If he leaves, then yes, then we can look at some people here. So when you're out of a job suddenly, you know, jobs don't just pop up. I was incredibly fortunate that I had former bosses who I was friends with, who I had a good relationship with, and then new bosses at MLB Network who said, listen, once you dig up the story and you get all the facts of it, you go, you know what? If that's it, then fine. We, we, we think this guy's pretty good, and we're willing to uh, assume that nothing like this is going to happen in the future. Yeah. Listen, you're 100% right on reputation. It, to me, what bothers me the most out of all of it is that there are a lot of people. Uh, that business is built in almost entirely after reporting like live game analysis. The entire business is built on having reliable sources which come down to relationships and the ability to be able to talk and share information. And every relationship that is successful works both ways. So if they want their people to get information, from time to time their people also have to give information. People don't just spill stuff all the time without expecting something back. They know that. Um, so. You know, the guys that you mentioned who are quote unquote insiders, who have relationships at the tippy top of significant organizations who get that information directly from them, there is a payback for them doing so. There is always a payback. So the, to gong somebody for something as absolutely innocent is just hypocritical in my opinion. But I appreciate that, Joanna. I was about to, to your point. So those that don't know our business, they, they see the headline, Burke fired for leaking confidential information. They go, oh, my God. Well, I mean, listen, I don't care what company you work for, right? American Express, uh, you work for Google, you can't leak confidential information. You literally have a mental image of me, like Xeroxing photocopies, I'm sure, like sending them to people. Oh, this is confidential information. Until when you actually read the story, not just the initial in your post, and you go, 
Hang on a second. Are you kidding? And, and to your point, anybody in the media, what exactly is information sharing? And once you remove the stigma of it's anything nefarious, like I was not harming anybody. I would never look to make anybody at ESPN look bad. I wasn't trying to make our programming people look, you know, silly. It was just, as you said, you give something, you get something. So, you know, people say a lot of nice things about me and I'm going to go out there and do blogs and I'm representing the company well on podcasts. To your point was sometimes those people, exactly what you just said, relationships. It's relationship building. We're not, we're not the robots here. Somebody says it gives you a little bit of pub and then you're their podcast and hey, ESPN's great. Hey, by the way, hey, I'm just curious. I'm working on a story. Have you heard anything about this? That's it. And anybody in our business like you or me understands that. People who don't go, oh man, that sounds like you, you can't say stuff off the record. I'm like, no, no, you're missing the point. You clearly don't know the way the media works, the way, the way any journalism works. And so I, I really appreciate you saying that and being smart enough to recognize our business. Well, this has been awesome. Uh, I hope you will uh, come back again. Uh, question for you. You know, the obvious question is, if you could only watch one movie again, what movie would it be? I know mine, but <laughs> what would your movie be? Now, it's always a hard one. I would go with Goodfellas just because I think it's so kinetic and it's so rewatchable. I remember seeing it in Morven, Ontario with my brother. We were definitely way too young to watch an R-rated movie. But one of the upsides of working at Zach's Variety when your parents own it and operate it is I could uh, you know, order some of the movies. So I would kind of tell my dad, we should get these movies in the store. People will rent those out well. People will, will get the VHS cassette of this. And so then my brother and I would sneak upstairs and we'd watch the movies. So we got to watch Goodfellas. I mean, listen, this is 1990, it was released. I saw it in 91, I was 13. I believe there's about 212 F-bombs. So that's way too much for a 13 year old. I will certainly condone that behavior with my own children. But I think it's a wonderful ride. I really do. And I think it's one of the great dark comedies of all time. Goodfellas is a ostensibly a crime picture and a gangster movie, but it's also really funny. Like any of the scenes with Joe Pesci and Spider, they make me laugh out loud. When, when they go see Scorsese's mom, she's actually playing uh, Joe Pesci's mom in the movie. That whole scene where they're looking at one dog goes one way, one dog goes the other way. I'm going to borrow this knife. It looks like someone we know. Like that, that is hilarious black comedy. And I think the performances, Pesci won the Oscar, but of course De Niro's Jimmy Conway and Henry Hill. Nick Pileggi, who wrote the book, he wrote in, in Wise Guy, which Goodfellas was based upon, most gangsters by nature are narcissists, right? They're hugely self-absorbed and arrogant monsters. He said, so they don't really see what's in front of them. But Henry Hill was an exception. Henry Hill was all eyes. And I thought that's a great description for the way Ray Liotta plays Henry Hill. Even from the first shots, it's kind of, you know, an homage to Scorsese's own childhood. You know, he had terrible asthma as a kid. He never got to go out there growing up in Little Italy in New York City. But there was a lot of, you know, wise guys on the street so to speak so he'd be looking at his window seeing all this stuff and of course later he put it in his movies like mean streets and like goodfellas and like casino like the irishman which was my favorite movie of course of last year so i just think all the performances and of course the directing you know a movie like goodfellas it lifts you up because you go god i'd love to be a gangster like jonah let's go hijack a truck right now like it looks like so much fun you know just the copra shot with henry seducing karen and the girls and the money and the cars and then of course the crash is incredible like that whole sequence where he's high on drugs and incredibly paranoid. I mean, it's, it, it is like you're drunk on the joy of filmmaking when you watch Goodfellas. I love that movie so much. Well, huge fan. I saw that in the same theater, the same time frame that I saw mine. I was in Burlington, Vermont, and mine is Shawshank Redemption. I think it's for a lot, oh, yeah. of, I think it's for a lot of the same reason. Um, there's some incredible moments of, of courage, comedy. Don't we all just want to find a way to... Uh, to make it in jail, bust out of it, and end up in uh, Ziwatanehu with uh, one of our prison mates. <laughs> Shawshank won the great reminder. Speaking of comebacks, it was a dud at the box office because it was a bad title. People yep. said, what the hell is that? The Shawshank Redemption, huh? And then it was a huge hit. But by the way, credit to the Oscars. People like to mock the Academy Awards, and that's fine. Trust me, I will too. But they recognized it was a good movie. They gave it seven Academy Award nominations. Of course, it lost uh, tragically to Forrest Gump. I would have voted for Pulp Fiction, which I think is, I mean, 94 is one of the great years ever with Shawshank and Pulp Fiction and Lion King and Quiz Show, which is a great Robert Redford movie. God, I love to turn on that movie. But anyways, as you well know, it was a dud at the box office, but the critics loved it and it did wealthy Oscars and it was enormous on home video. And now you turn the TV on, it's on, it's on AMC or TNT or Turner everywhere. It's one of the most beloved movies ever. It's amazing. Yeah, I, uh, I, I really miss the fact that uh, there's not great things to see at the theater as frequently as they used to. 
you talked about movie books. One of my favorites is Sleepless in Hollywood about the current state of the movie business. Um, you know, I, I think in one of your podcasts, you said you made reference to the fact or, or maybe it was in, in Curb last night. I can't remember which one they were talking about the fact that there's 27 versions of Ice Age or something like how many of these. Should, how many <laughs> um, but yeah, like it's like we went to go see a movie Saturday night. I, as I said, I saw the, uh, the uh, Ben Affleck movie and uh, he's amazing. I didn't think the movie was very good, but I thought he did an incredible job and it was really for lack of alternatives. And I'll say that the previews to the movie, which is sometimes better than the movie, were all atrocious. Um, anyway, <laughs> awesome having you on. Uh, I hope you will do it again. We really appreciate your time. And uh, you, you know that uh, those of, those puckheads of us, wh whether it be in the Okanagan Valley or Algonquin Park, are watching. <laughs> I really appreciate it, Jonah. And I'm glad that uh, we're mutual friends with the great Dave Crick, who would make me laugh so much when I was at the score. Another wonderful guy is Scott Turk, and Turk lost his job at ESPN right around when I did. So I, I was, listen, I was still poor what happened to me. When he told me what happened to him, I was even more flabbergasted. He's a great guy, good family man. He's got three kids. He loves the Sopranos like I do. He loves the Larry Sanders show as much as I do. So uh, shout out to Dave Crick and Scott Turk and two great guys. Well, I hope you've seen Scott Turk and do Dana Carvey's Chopping Broccoli, and we'll just... Uh... We will leave it at that. If you haven't, you make sure you call Scott and you get him to do it for you. <laughs> I was going to say, if I call him, he's going to talk about Michigan for 10 minutes. So if I can get through that preamble, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you for listening. You can get this download and all of our others, however you access your podcast. And uh, thanks again to Adam Burke, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.